Welcome to the Property CEO Podcast, your inside track to the world of property with your hosts, Ian Child and Richie Clapson. Hello and welcome to the Property CEO Podcast. My name is Ian Child and I'm here with Richie Clapson. Hello everyone. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the wonderful world of industrial conversions, aren't we, Richie? That's right. I'm going to run through the strategy of converting existing uh, industrial buildings into residential schemes. Which is always really exciting, as it never seems, uh, ceases to amaze me how good the strategy of industrial conversions is, yet so few people seem to know about it. Well, you know, the, uh, the interesting thing is that it's not only new developers that find this stuff interesting. I train quite a, quite a number of existing developers, and they're equally surprised at what you can do. That's exactly why uh, we call it the undiscovered strategy. Anyway, uh, how was your week, Mr. Child? Uh, you've been doing a few things with your student properties, I hear. My student properties, yes, I have. And, uh, and surprisingly, it may have ended up with a possible brush with the RSPCA. Really? You know, are they now getting involved with students? Well, not exactly. Uh, I was I was refurbishing one of my my student lets, um, uh-huh. and the front garden was kind of very untidy, so I decided to do a, a two tone gravel. Oh, thing. that's stylish. Sounds a bit nineteen eighties. No, all the rage down our way. I can tell you. Plus, uh, it means that my tenants don't have to contend with the dreaded L word. Okay, you lost me. What's the dreaded L word? Lawnmower. So I've not yet I've not yet come across a student who's been able to work out what it's for. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. So, um, so if you can imagine this, the, the, the front garden is kind of divided into two main areas, and I asked my builder to put down some dark brown pebbles on kind of one half, and some light brown pebbles on the other half. I thought a perfectly reasonable request and something that I didn't really need to double check. Anyway, next time I go round, I can see that my builder had ordered, he'd ordered the dark brown pebbles, uh, but then he'd also ordered some stuff that looked almost exactly the same as cat litter. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like bright white. It's not actually cat litter, is it? I don't know. Although, to be honest, it might as well have been. Because uh, the first day it went down, I, I arrived to find a hairy great Turdington sitting in the middle of it. So I got rid of that. Then two days later, I go back and it's a complete sea of the stuff. <laughs> it looks like every cat in the neighborhood has been coming to my front garden to do its business. So I did what uh, you know, every good landlord do, should do, uh, which is I went to the pet store and I, and I asked them what I could do about it. And I got sold this ridiculously expensive cat repellent thing. Yeah. Um, and it, and I was told that it was kind of like this was this powder stuff. It was like the gold standard. This is like the last word in uh, in stopping cats going anywhere near your property. So I try this stuff, and it's absolute rubbish. <laughs> when I go back, uh, having put this stuff down, the situation, uh, if anything, is worse. So I thought, you know, perhaps I wasn't putting enough of it down. So I basically used up the whole, well, nearly the whole tin. I come back two days later and absolutely no difference at all. Now, in the end, I managed to find the culprit. It was this massive ginger tom. I mean, not being funny, it's the size of a small pony and it does bigger Turdingtons than I do, I think. Um, don't know what it's been eating. Uh, other cats or, or, or small dogs, <laughs> maybe. Anyway, uh, uh, I'd always thought cats were supposed to kind of bury their stuff. 
you know, after they've done it. But frankly, uh, this boy doesn't doesn't bother. So now uh, the refurb is complete. <laughs> My contractor's out of there. The agent has got people coming to view the property. <laughs> and it, it's a problem. It's impossible to, um, not to miss this kind of heady cocktail of feline excrement and cat repellent as you come oh, down the front that's path. That's nice. That's nice. Mm, exactly. So I went, I went back to the shop that sold me the cat repellent and I explained that, well, A, it was completely useless and uh, B, that I needed something that was a kind of a lot more serious to kind of sort the problem permanently. Uh, when they asked me to explain what exactly it was that I had in mind, um, they kind of made me feel a bit like I was arranging some sort of mafia hit. <laughs> I thought they were going to call the police. It turns out that actually, as it turns out, uh, cat repellent powder is about as hardcore as you can get. <laughs> so wh- what were you thinking? Hand grenades and submachine guns? <laughs> well, no, but um, I thought there might be something that sort of bridged the gap uh, between kind of useless cat powder and automatic <laughs> weaponry. I mean, Gold standard cat powder. Well, exactly. Anyway, I, I decided to go there on the day of the viewing to make sure kind of everything was... Uh, Turdington Free, and uh, and whilst these students were being shown round, I actually saw the little what's-it doing a big what's-it right in the middle of the garden. This is the cat, not this the student. Is the, this is the cat, not the student, yeah. So uh, I grabbed the empty tin of cat repellent, repellent, which was by the door, opened the front door and threw it and got bullseye. Presumably, presumably that would technically be a cat's eye. Well, exactly. But So the ginger Tom disappears in a flash, and I, I've not seen him since. Uh, but unfortunately, the letting agent, turns out, bit of a cat lover, uh, <laughs> saw me throw this tube of cat repellent at Mr Tibbles, and now now she's not talking to me, uh, so I suspect I could get a call from the RSPCA any day now. Still, it proves that the tin of expensive cat repellent was actually OK after all. You just uh, you just were using it wrong. You've not read yeah, the instructions. I hadn't, hadn't thought of that. Lob at cat. <laughs> Anyway, so I managed to get the house rented out in the end, which was good. So all's well that ends well. But enough of my feline problems. Let's talk about industrial conversions. I think we should, yeah. So, Richie, um, why should anyone consider converting industrial buildings into, into residential accommodation in the first place? I think, you know, from the outside, they can look pretty tricky to do because they often don't look remotely residential, do they? No, they, they don't. I mean, why should you consider it? Because it's another property strategy. You know, it's another option. And, uh, you know, we often talk about industrial buildings as the undiscovered strategy. So the, one of the first things I'd say you want to be considering it is because people out there or the majority of people don't know anything about it. So, you know, those of you that are listening to this podcast, you are in the minority of uh, either new developers or potentially, uh, you know, existing developers don't know about some of this stuff or don't understand it. You're probably one of the handful of people that actually listen to the podcast. Yeah, you could be. Yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> definitely now, a minority. I mean, firstly, there is a p- permitted development right, uh, you know, given by the government that means you can do this stuff without planning. Now, there are limitations, like a lot of the PD rights, is up to about 500 square metres. So you can't develop an industrial or light industrial, should I qualify, building over 500 square metres. Now, agents work in square foot, so it's a, probably about... 5350 something like that that square foot so up until that size with a few other criteria in terms of how long it's been in use and so on and so forth you can actually convert without the need for full planning permission so that's another great reason to get into this a bit like commercial conversions of offices you know you can do that without planning permission full planning permission so it's a great it's a great strategy to get into and that's great for two reasons isn't it one is is time 
and the other is is risk. Do you just want to explain those two points? Yeah, absolutely, definitely. I mean, it, it's largely is is in an un, unobstructed route to development. So in terms of time, you're not having to spend this process of going down the uh, discussion with the planners, going through a submission, then coming back with comments, going back again, which could take you could take you twelve months. You know, in theory, it should only take you twelve weeks, but you could go backwards and forwards. So that's that's definitely a big thing. And of course, time is money. And uh, equally, money comes into this as well without knocking the building down. So, you know, if, you, if you've got a building that you can use, there's a whole load of value there. So not knocking it down is a big thing. And just to be clear, with the permitted development route, uh, the council is obliged to effectively sign it off. You have to notify them, but they sign it off within, I think, is it 56 days? Yeah, it's 56 days. There are, there are some rules. So they can, they can restrict you in terms of normal PD routes, in terms of uh, flood risks. Uh, contamination, transport, highway impact. So those are the normal routes that they would have for commercial conversions. In addition, loss of employment. So if the council believe that this industrial unit, this light industrial unit is is important for the area and they need employment in that area, they can restrict it on that basis. But the council would have to, or you'd have to prove it's not important, sorry, rather than the council prove it is. So you've got to improve, you know, perhaps it's been on the market or there's plenty of other vacant opportunities in there or it's just in the wrong area. So a lot of these light industrial units are in the middle of residential areas, which is not necessarily appropriate for industrial work. So again, you can have this opportunity to say that you know it's not required for employment use in that area the other great thing about doing it as a permitted development route is you can actually get unit sizes individual flats down to about 30 square meters there's no need to comply with local authority space standards or indeed uh, parking requirements or amenity issues that's the gardens so if you're developing a building under planning you have to comply with parking requirements and amenity space um, and, and you have to have flats you know, within space standards, which is often about 37 square metres for a one-bed flat, whereas you can go down to about 30 square metres if you're doing a permitted development scheme. So I think there's a lot of big advantages you can do if you're actually developing a, you know, a light industrial building out. So uh, when people think of industrial buildings, I guess it, it may conjure up an image of large factories and warehouses. Is that the sort of thing that we're talking about here? No, not necessarily. I mean, industrial buildings come in all shapes and sizes. I mean, in a, a lot of the easiest opportunities are actually from smaller units. So you could take, a, you know, a small scheme where maybe you could get, say, half a dozen flats um, out of a building in, in maybe a residential area. So if you've got a little light industrial unit that was uh, a small carpentry office or a little print shop or something like that, even a sort of garage, a little car MOT station or something, these often can be quite small units. And you can get five or six houses out of these or five or six flats. Now, the the advantage there is you're not getting into uh, contributions with council for affordable homes. A lot of the council numbers are about 10 or 11 units. Over that, you have to start doing affordable contributions or pay extra contributions, 106 or seal payments. So here... You know, you're, you're, you're under that scale. And, of course, you can make a nice, tidy profit out of a scheme with five or six units in it, so it works really well. And these size units, these sort of smaller scale units, you know, there's thousands of these across the country. They're all over the place. you just got to actually find them. So, you know, it's a matter of searching them out. Now, you can do a bigger scheme, but you don't then get the permitted development rights. So over 500 square metres, you don't get permitted development rights. Well, that was going to be my next question, which is, you know, do you think it's essential that as developers, we only look at buildings under 500 square metres with those PD rights? No, I mean, there's no problem in, in tackling larger units. You just need to apply for planning permission. And, 
you know, you've got to understand that that's, uh, that's going to take you a lot longer. You know, you're going down a different route. Uh, you've inevitably got more risk with that. That You know, your planning permission might not be granted straight away. There might be certain requirements or restrictions they put on you. So, you know, from my point of view, why go down a road and put yourself an extra barrier in the way when you don't need to? Certainly for your first development, if you're a new developer, then I would only look at stuff with permitted development rights because it's it's a lot easier. You're not getting into this affordable houses and affordable contribution. And of course, with a smaller scheme, you know, you're getting in the market and getting out of the market quite quickly. So if you're running a scheme with five, six, seven, you know, maybe up to nine or 10 units, you can make a very healthy profit out of that and you can get in the market and you can get back out. And the big difference with the, the permitted developments or the non-permitted developments, i.e. the planning route, is this space standard issue for me. Because if you've got a flat which has got to be 37 square metres under space standards, if we're talking about one bedrooms, and you can go down to 30 square metres, that's a big reduction for a one bedroom where you don't need to comply to space standards. 30 square metres, by the way, is the limit of which below that is, is difficult to get a mortgage. I'm not saying you can't, but you don't want to go below that. And it's about the smallest you can get for a workable one bed flat. Now, of course, the difference between 30 square metres and 37 often means the difference of maybe one or two flats in a scheme. That can be the difference. Big dent in your profits, potentially. Well, it can be the difference between profit or no profit, <laughs> yeah. either scheme working or not working. So I would say if you can, go down the permitted development route. And I suppose there's, there's also probably worth noting that the reason, uh, theoretically at least, that the, the government has granted PD rights for light industrial units is, of course, they do recognise the advantage. There's a housing shortage. Having these things converted into residential units should at least, if you are faced with an opportunity perhaps downstream where you've got uh, a deal that requires planning permission, um, then you'd, you'd be thinking that actually at least there then there is kind of a an overarching policy that says there is a, a mind to have these units developed into residential units. It's kind of a positive thing rather than being viewed negatively. Yeah, although I just would add to that is that this is set by the government, not necessarily local authority. Yeah. Uh, so there is Good a point. subtle difference there. Some local authorities don't actually agree with what the government is suggesting. So contrary to what you said, some areas that might be received well, other local authorities might actually uh, take a slightly different view and uh, it's maybe it's not their flavour, so they're going to fight against it. So where do you begin then when considering the conversion of an industrial building? Okay, well, I mean, it, it's like any development strategy. First of all, get yourself, uh, you know, if you're a new developer, so if, if, if the question is, if you're a new developer, how do you get into this, where do you start? Uh, as we say at Property CEO, get yourself a good non-executive advisor and a good professional team around you. You know, the non-executive advisor role is absolutely paramount to how we say you should set yourself up in business if you're a new developer. In fact, even as an existing established developer, it's a great, great way to work. And get that professional team around you. So that's really important. And now, just trying to think about it, let me try and uh, tell you how you convert an industrial building. And this is difficult to explain on a podcast. I mean, if I was sat doing a presentation with a flip chart, it's much, much easier to do. But let's just try and imagine, if you're out there, just imagine the Millennium Dome, or as it's now called, the O2 Arena. So a lot of people will be familiar with that building, even if you've not been there. It's like a big tented structure. And what did they do in that? Well, they certainly did this. Uh, it's a very good example if you ever went to it when it was the Millennium Dome and the exhibition. Not massively dissimilar now. You can go into it. It's still the big tented structure. And inside that tent is other buildings. So there's restaurants, there's cafes. There's even, obviously, there's the, there's the big arena now, the O2 Arena inside itself. And there's a theatre as well, in there, you know, a, a, a cinema. Theatre, that sounds a bit old-fashioned. There's a cinema as well. 
So all these buildings are being built inside one big building. So it's like a big canopy over the top and inside there's individual buildings. So outside, you know, the Millennium Dome now doesn't look at any different as the O2 Arena as it did at the turn of the Millennium. They've just taken out the buildings inside and they've replaced them with different buildings. So just think of that concept. That gives you the sort of concept of a building inside a building. Now, obviously, if you do changes to the outside, so a lot of industrial buildings don't have windows in, you'll need to be thinking about that. Now, that's a planning application. So you will need to do a full application for what we often would call like a stage one. We phase these. So if you've got a good planning consultant on board, they'll advise you. So what you do is you put an application in to change the windows. Not necessary for the change of use. This is just to change the windows. Now, Providing those window changes are done sympathetically, there should be no objections, you know, from the council or for local neighbours. Obviously, you can't start putting windows in overlooking someone else's property. So your architect and planning consultant would advise you. So you go in for a change of use on windows. Your second stage is you then go in under the prior notification, you know, these permitted development rights, and you go in to actually change it and actually convert the building into the individual residential schemes. So that's your sort of second second stage to it. Now, you can do these sometimes single storey or two storey. If you think of the Millennium Dome, it's a huge structure. You know, there's there's eight or nine storey buildings inside that Um in an industrial building, quite often they're only single story, so you might just get a single story residential flat, or you might get a two story in there, or you might get some duplex, you know, units or st- or stack them up. So depending on the height of what you, what you actually get in there, I mean, there's lots of other things to think about: getting light into the units, how you get natural light into the building. That's really really important. Running all the services out of the building, like sewage, is really important. You know, the sewage only goes one way and it's normally down and you have to have a gravity system. It's how you get that out. That just takes a bit of thinking about. And then coming in, the the new services coming in, like electricity and gas if you need it, and water, all really important things that you have to think about. And you want to try and do this without digging into the ground because a lot of these industrial buildings have been used, you know, no, no surprise, for industrial purposes. What is industrial processes often involve? They often involve contamination. And so sometimes there's contamination under these slabs. So the concrete slab is the sort of surface area. And you want to avoid, if you can, digging into that. So that's a process that you have to go through in the design concept of these things, is try and avoid digging into the slab and getting contamination issues. One, because it's expensive, costs you a lump of money. And two, of course, it's one of the criteria that the council potentially can stop you on or slow you up on because they want to know what you're going to do with any contamination that's there. Well, largely, if you leave contamination in place, this isn't really always absolutely true but largely it's a lot easier to leave contamination in place than dig it up and try and remove it costs you a lot more as well and of course a lot of the slabs in these properties are are, are heavy duty because they've been used for industrial purposes so much more robust than is required for a residential they are and, and and again difficult to explain this on a podcast but that actually is one of the big advantages for building inside so if you take the millennium dome Pretty much, you know, the the buildings that were there, some of those were just built off of the slabs Mm. where the other buildings were built. And this is the same in industrial building. You've got a big concrete slab that might have held, uh, you know, big industrial equipment, big machinery, big presses and that sort of thing. If it was a printing works, that's all gone. Now, you think of a residential unit. What's in a residential unit? Well, there's there's a cooker and there's a fridge and there's a bit of sofa and a TV. 
all lightweight stuff. So it enables you to actually build the walls, the internal walls, which normally you'd need footings for, you know, foundations in the ground, build these straight off of the slab. Yeah. So that capacity, this, this heavy-duty industrial capacity of the slab is really po- important part of the concept of building straight off of it internally. So that's, that's really important. So just think of it, you know, for the purposes of this podcast, think about a building inside another building, and that's the process you go through. And I think that can... That- is that that kind of light bulb moment for so many people when they think about industrial conversions? Because of course the, the the O2 arena, you can see it's basically a big tent, yeah. And so you can quite easily imagine a building with, inside a building because it's so huge and it's it's it looks like it's you know it's it's the cover over the top. But actually, if you're just taking an industrial building, um, I mean, we've been doing one recently where literally everything is built within within the same uh, same envelope as the same building. Uh, right up to the roof, right down to the floor, right up to the walls. It's a building that fits very snugly inside a building. We followed the same profile of the industrial building. Yeah. So, yeah, so that particular building you're thinking of, the flats in there are, are vaulted. All the ceilings are vaulted. Mm. They're open right up to the roof, which not only makes it a really interesting flat, yeah. uh, it puts more value on the flat, but also in terms of buildability, we're just following, as you say, the same line of the existing building. So it's a very easy concept. So I mean, just to think of that, if you think of a tent, and you think of a, 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 the tent structure itself, it's often a thin membrane with no insulation on it at all. It's probably waterproof, but no, no insulation properties. Well, the roof of an industrial building is often like that. They're often not heated. You know, it could just be a bit of crinkly tin or something. That sometimes we would take that off. So we take off the outer finish and put a new finish on, maybe a, a slate tile roof or something. And then we've got to build up some insulation layers on the inside and some plasterboard to make it look, you know, more and, and act more like a residential property. So it's basically putting a new lining right round the inside. So if you can imagine a tent and you lined it with insulation, it's that that That's type that of approach. Now, is there any problem in getting development finance on uh, on projects like this? No, no, not not at all. I mean, it's the usual, uh, you know, deal analysis approach. You've got to have a minimum, minimum of 20% uh, profit margin as always. The important thing here is you need a good professional team on board to demonstrate uh, you know, what you're doing uh, and how it all works and how it all stacks up. And that's really important so your funders understand it, you know. A lot of funders won't understand this straight away. And don't forget, see, funders are not technical people. You know, they are, they'll have underwriters and they'll probably ask you a lot more questions on an industrial conversion than they would on a commercial conversion. And then, of course, the, uh, the underwriters will have uh, an external surveying company that will normally get employed. And equally, they might not be that familiar with it. So goes back to a really good non-exec advisor and a really, really first-class professional team. So the professional team will be able to answer uh, all those questions that come at you from either the underwriter or the uh, you know the bank surveyors um, uh, you know external surveying company, and and you know knock them off at the pass straight away. So as long as your professional team have got the experience, and again it's it's like anything, picking the right professional team. So if you want to do an industrial conversion, talk to professionals that have actually done one. You'll be surprised. It's quite. A, I mean, this isn't a new concept. You know, industrial conversions. I've been doing for thirty-five years, so it's not new, but it's a fairly undiscovered strategy, particularly in the training world. There's no one out there training industrial conversions at all. So, ask your professionals in terms of you know, have they done one? If they haven't, you know, maybe see if if they've got some knowledge, or if they haven't, move on and get another professional that's done that. And on that point, uh, as this is largely undiscovered, then I, I guess there's some there's some great opportunities out there. Oh, I mean, absolutely. You know, uh, I mean, there was uh, 
And one we come across recently, which, uh, you know, there was an auction across... So this basically covered two counties, probably more, but if we just took the two counties, and there was an industrial conversion in there. Now, the actual project involved, uh, or, or it was portrayed in the auction, of knocking down an industrial building and building two brand-new three-bed houses from memory. Uh, now, one of our students came to us and actually looked at the houses and when well it loses i think it was 35,000 pound loss or something but but actually what they were able to do was think out the box a little bit through through the training that we'd given them through property ceo and they understood the concept of industrial conversions and they actually had to reanalyze it and they actually got into a position where they had um i think about uh, nearly 200,000 pound profit or there or thereabouts hmm. compared to compared to that loss and what was really interesting is that then come the auction day only two people bid on that project. This is amazing, isn't it? Because uh, across you, two counties, you'd, you'd think that any project like that is relatively small scale. It, the, num- the number I remember was about two hundred and forty thousand pounds profit for six. That was for six oh, flats. For six yeah, just five. under that, under two hundred for for five. And, and you'd think there would be a, a queue of people bidding for that, but everybody had simply looked at the at building planning permission to be given for two three bed semis and that was all everybody was crunching their numbers on it didn't stack up nobody was bidding and it was yeah just two people and, and you see you know if that was a, an office block uh you know there's a huge amount of people that's been educated about commercial conversions yeah. over the last four or five years uh not being rude but most of them wouldn't have had a clue what to do with this so th- this undiscovered property strategy you know people that do know it and there was one person because there wasn't even two two people bid the actual person who won it unfortunately our student didn't win it she got slightly outbid was a builder who bi- who's actually going to knock down the industrial unit and build the houses now he won't build it at a loss because he's just building it apparently to keep his guys. They lost a project recently. This is what the auctioneer told us. Mm-hmm. Lost a project, so he's just buying it as a hospital project to keep his guys going. Yeah. So actually, only one person across two counties knew the way to get knew the way to go. No, so um, you know there are there are great opportunities out there, and um, you know you can make you can make some good six figure sums out of this. And you know these buildings, that particular building, in terms of purchasing it. Uh, was about one hundred and seventy, hundred eighty thousand pounds. Wow. So you can go and buy these buildings down at the smaller scale. Okay, you could spend millions on an industrial building, but if we're talking about something which is manageable, which maybe our listeners could think about here, a building that you could go and buy for maybe one hundred seventy-five to two hundred thousand pound. Now this is on the south coast. Now to to get that into some perspective, there's not many places on the south coast that for under two hundred thousand you can buy a two-bed house. Yeah. Not, not really. Not, not many, no. So you don't need to raise a lot of money to buy to buy a building like that. So you know, a couple of hundred thousand, you need to raise about sixty or seventy thousand pounds. So that's all you need to raise, and the profit out of this thing was two hundred thousand pounds or oh, circa two hundred thousand. So it's immense. Fantastic, Richie. I think that's probably. Uh... We have to leave it there in terms of uh, industrial conversions. I know there's quite a lot more to the subject. Uh, and we cover that actually in other areas, particularly on our on our webinar and on some of our, our courses. But I think that the, if I look at the, the takeaways for me on this one, um, there's, there's a few. Uh, firstly, it really is a great strategy, you know, making use of the government's uh, PD rights. Um, it's, it's getting that development done without the obstacles uh, that get in the way when you need planning permission. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I think the analogy of the Millennium Dome is great. I think it gives a great picture in, in your mind of how to do this sort of development, that building uh, inside a building. Um, it is, as I said, difficult to kind of explain it all on a podcast. So, um, yeah, I definitely recommend that if people want to find out a little bit more about how it actually works and see some examples, uh, then by all means, come on to one of our training webinars on industrial conversions because they're always we, we That's make a good those, idea. those free to sign up to. Uh, just by all means, just check out our website at uh, propertyco.co.uk. Um, and I think the third thing is going back to that, yeah, how much money can be made out of a, of a very simple project? Um, yeah, we said it was 200000 from from that particular example. Um and it, you know, it, it, it would only have cost, well, by the time you bought the building and then done it up, you know, probably less than half a million pounds or yeah. around about half a million pounds yeah. to, to kind of for the whole project cost. So to get then a, a return of 200,000 is really amazing. But it, it, the secret there is the fact, you know, you're not knocking something down and starting again. Uh, you're doing a building within a building. Uh, you're making use of, of what's there. And of course, you're taking something that most people overlook because it, unlike a, perhaps a commercial conversion where you're you're taking an office building perhaps and and then uh turning it into residential it's kind of quite obvious to see how that's done you can make an office look like in a set of a part block of apartments with industrial people just look at it and think well you, you couldn't live there and move on it is say it can be extremely lucrative you just need to think out the box a little i like your suggestion yeah definitely if you've got chance come on to uh our industrial conversion webinar that we give, which is a free talk on it. It really is a lot easier to explain with pictures. And actually, we've got some uh, live examples, real live examples we show you on there. And I think you'd be amazed. Uh, you'd definitely come on to that. You'd be amazed to uh, to see how, actual, how simple it is. Fantastic. That's great, Richie. Thank you very much. Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode. Uh, we do hope that was useful and enlightened you about um, a property strategy, which, as we said, is largely undiscovered. Please do join us next time when we'll be giving you the inside track on yet another part of the property world. In the meantime, feel free to check out our, our other podcast episodes. And of course, you can visit our website, which is at propertyceo.co.uk. Until next time, it's goodbye from us both. Goodbye. Goodbye.